Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, again, it's so great to be with you this morning and welcome. Thanks for being with us as we've gathered around Jesus, as we've worshiped, and now as we gather to hear his word. And before we do so, I just want to give a brief update. Pastor Nikki, who was just praying up here, has been approved for ordination in our denominational body. Uh, She's been working on that this year, and so we're so happy for her. So if you're viewing us live, just show her some love in the chat. That would be awesome. Uh, We are excited to have Curtis Peters, who is our district superintendent, come sometime soon on a Sunday to make it official. So again, Nikki, congratulations. We're so happy for you. It seems like this past year has been full of so many history-making events. I mean, growing up reading history books, I never thought that my life might actually be witness to some of these events, but this past year has been a doozy. And most recently, we've uh, seen the... uh, Uh, transfer of power from one U.S. president to another U.S. president this past week. And and just before that, we saw a hostile takeover of the U.S. Capitol by supporters of the previous president. I mean, these are crazy times. And with a hostile takeover fresh in our minds, in the text that we're going to be considering today, Jesus tells a parable about a hostile takeover. And this parable is actually one of the central parables in the New Testament that gives us one of the the clearest pictures of what is wrong with the world and what God has done and is doing about it. What is wrong with the world and what God is doing about it. So that's what we're going to consider today as we open the Bible and get back into our sermon series in Luke's gospel as the drama of Jesus's life and ministry is now drawing to its climax as he's now entered Jerusalem and he is at the temple, the very epicenter of Jewish political and religious life. And he is being confronted by the religious leaders there, and he's teaching the people. So if you have a Bible, please do open it up. We do believe that this is God's inspired word for us, and it will never lead us astray. So open your Bible to chapter Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9, and we'll read through verse 18. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 18. And I invite you to just pause and listen up because what we're about to read is God's word. He, Jesus, went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. 
Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. This is God's word to us. Will you pray with me? Living God, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us. And just as the Spirit inspired Luke to pen these words, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to receive them and to understand their meaning. Lord Jesus, would you be present among us, bringing us good news that changes our lives as we dive into your words this morning. And I pray this in your matchless and precious name. Amen. In reading through that parable, you in the 21st century in Toronto or wherever you are, probably already started to make some of the connections that Jesus was making in his parable. You probably already guessed that the owner of the vineyard stands for God and that the vineyard stands for the nation of Israel and the tenants are the rulers or the leaders of Israel who were entrusted with leading the nation faithfully to follow God. All of these connections would have been really obvious to those listening to Jesus in the temple courts that day. He was drawing on a really well-known poem and an image from the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, there is a song about a vineyard, and it goes like this. I will sing for the one I love a song of his vineyard. My beloved, my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower on it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And then in verse 7, it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Isn't that a heartbreaking song? Of how God made a people and chose them and set them apart to be his special people. He made a covenant with them and they turned away from him and and didn't walk in his ways. And now what is happening in in Jesus' day is Jesus is taking up this parable again and he's retelling it in light of his own person in ministry. He's trying to communicate the significance and meaning of the moment as he has now entered Jerusalem and what he is about to do as he walks the road to the cross. So there's been a hostile takeover 
of God's vineyard. How is God responding? What is God doing about it? The parable lays it out very clearly. We're going to look at four things, four ways that God acts in response to the hostile takeover. First, he gives his land. Second, he gives his servants or his messengers. Third, he gives his son. And last, he gives his judgment. So let's look at that now. First, he gives his land. It's really important to notice that before the hostile takeover even happens, there is a huge gift in the creation of the vineyard and then of handing the vineyard over to tenants. He created and planted the vineyard. He hedged it up. He built watchtowers on it. He made everything ready for the tenants to come in and and get to work and start producing good fruit. Now, the word tenant in Greek is the word georgos. And it's where we get the English name George. And if your name's George, you might want to listen up because your name simply means gardener. Gardener. And so what happens here is that these tenants are called to be gardeners. It's a managerial role. It's not an ownership role. They're meant to be stewards cultivating the vineyard on behalf of the owner. And as I mentioned, Jesus is speaking directly to Israel and its leadership, but he is also speaking in a broader sense to to humanity. This parable has application, yes, for the leadership of Israel, but also for us as well. I mean, the imagery of a garden brings us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, where in the first pages of the Bible, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he plants a garden there, and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he commissioned them. He commissioned them to fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over it. In other words, he he told Adam and Eve to be gardeners, to cultivate the raw potential of the earth and to, to harness it, to make it into a place where life can thrive and people can live in harmony with one another. Gardening is a key image in the Bible that tells us what it means to be human and what our vocation is as humans In the world, we're meant to be gardeners. Now, I want you to pause. Just think about what it took for the creator to give his creation over to tenant gardeners. There is a deep and unparalleled love that a creator or a builder or a craftsperson has for that which they have made. I mean, when you make something, You pour yourself into it. You're personally invested. I did a little renovation on our house entrance this past year. And in in the process of tearing out walls and building, rebuilding that space, uh, I came into an intimate knowledge of that nook of our house. I mean, I don't just know what's on the walls. I know what's in the walls. I know where every single electrical wire is. I know uh, exactly where the vent ducts run through the walls. I drove the screws into the studs myself and I know everything about it. I know the the floor and the subfloor and the mortar that holds it all together. I have this deep personal investment because I made it. 
But for me, there's a downside. You see, it also adds to the stress that I feel, and maybe you can relate. Uh, When my kids come in just caked in mud and they take their muddy hands and, you know, put mud all over the walls. I mean, as the maker of that space, I'm like personally affronted when my kids treat it carelessly. And I have my own control issues to work through and I'm doing that. Thank you very much. I mean, it's called a mud room for a reason. So, so I need to get over that. But still, there is a risk of creating something and then releasing it and giving it over to others. There's a huge risk there. You run the risk of heartbreak. Now, think of God creating the masterpiece that is creation and humanity and everything that we can see and how he invested himself personally in what he created. So much so that he created uh, man and woman and he, it says in the opening pages of the Bible that he made them in his image. I mean, how much more personally invested could you be? And then he gave his creation to those humans to be gardeners and just pause and know the vulnerability and the costliness to that. And what the parable tells us is is what went wrong. What went wrong is that the gardeners didn't just want to be gardeners. They wanted mastery. They wanted ownership of the garden in a way that they were never meant to have. And they rise up in a hostile takeover. They want to be God. And this is a very clear picture of what sin is at its heart. I mean, if you're tuning in right now and you're maybe exploring faith in Jesus and, you know, these Christians are always talking about sin, well, here's one really helpful way to think about sin is that sin is rejecting God's claim to be God and trying to be God ourselves. Sin is rejecting God's claim to be God and and trying to make ourselves God. I mean, that's the story of, of Adam and Eve. They're tempted by the idea that if they eat of the fruit that they were commanded not to eat, that they would become like God, knowing right and wrong. And so that's the story of the Old Testament, that humanity over and over and over again goes its own way, trying to rule itself. And in his grace, God doesn't leave humanity. He doesn't say, you don't want me? Fine, I'll give you what you want. I'm out. He actually pursues them with grace, and he sets up a plan to deal with sin. And so the hostile takeover happens. Now what does the owner do? He sends his messengers. He gives his servants, sending them to his people to call them back to him. I mean, three times in the parable, the owner sends servants to the tenants to come and give the owner his due. And then notice, again, three times they are turned away. They're treated shamefully. And in that culture, when you sent a servant and that servant was insulted, that was an insult on you as well because they go in your name. They go representing you. Now, the servants in the parable represent the prophets that God sent. All throughout the Old Testament, God sent messengers to his people, again, calling them back to himself. And what Jesus is doing is he is reminding us and reminding his listeners of this key theme of God's patient and gracious love, that 
God reaches out. He reminds them over and over and over again and gives them all these chances to make it right. Three times he sends his servants. Three times the servants are rejected. And then we come to the center of the parable. Verse 13. The third way that God has acted is is he gives his son. He gives his beloved son. After the servants are rejected, in verse 13, it says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? What shall I do? Now, imagine you were hearing this for the first time, and you didn't know the end of the story. What would you do? What should the owner of the vineyard do? What makes sense for him to do? Probably send the authorities right? Like forcibly remove the insurgents. They have made their intentions crystal clear, so kick them out. And what the owner decides to do is just completely shocking. I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. He sends his son. And if you grew up in the church and you are so overly familiar with the story, I just want you to hear how shocking that is. I mean, would you do it? Would you send your son? It's a move that is hard to understand. I mean, why would you do that when they had rejected your servants and insulted them three times? Why would you put your own son at risk like that, knowing full well what could happen? Why? And as I've been reflecting on this, the the only possible explanation that comes to mind to answer that question of why God would send his son is this. He actually cares for the tenants. He actually cares for the tenants. Nothing else would explain this. If he didn't care, he wouldn't have waited to send the full force of the law down on them. I mean, they had blatantly violated their contract, but he doesn't. It's incredible. He is still for them, even though they're dead set against him. And instead of wrath and anger and the hammer of the law, he brings grace. And yet another final opportunity for them to turn and give up the hostile takeover. So he gives his son so that when they see his son, they would see how good he is of a landowner and they would quit the rebellion. It's just this stunning display of of sheer love and mercy towards people who completely don't deserve it. Now step back from the parable for just a second. This is why God gave his son, Jesus Christ. Because he actually loves humanity. Even in our rebellion, he loves us and has moved toward us. I mean, we just sang the song that Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. It's even more than that. Jesus sought me when a rebel. Jesus sought me when I hated him. That's the kind of love and grace that we are seeing here in this parable, that even in our rebellion, he moves towards us with grace, and it makes absolutely no logical sense. 
But Jesus has been doing a lot of things that don't make any sense in Luke's gospel. And he's showing us that God's kingdom and his own way uh, as we follow Jesus is, is completely upside down. It operates on a different logic. We in the world operate on the logic of common sense or retaliation or the hammer of the law, but the logic of the kingdom is the logic of grace. It's the logic of redemption and love. See, giving God's beloved son is God's supreme answer to the hostile takeover of his world. That's God's answer. That's what God is doing to fix the world and make it right. He sends his son. It's put so beautifully in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says this, and again, this is a very well-known passage of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I often grieve when verse 17 isn't included with verse 16 because it's just as good. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's how God responds. That's how God responds to the hostile takeover of his world. He acts to save the rebels. It's just incredible. And the kind of salvation that the Bible is talking about here isn't only a spiritual salvation in the sweet by and by. It includes the idea of healing and restoration and renewal now. That the the salvation we're talking about here, what God wants for your life and for my life and for the life of your neighbors is a redeemed and renewed existence. Even now. It's incredible. That's why God sends his son. He's opening up the way of salvation for for rebels like me and rebels like you. As we put our faith in him, as we turn away from sin, and as we allow him again to sit on the throne of our lives and on the throne of the world. But the parable doesn't end there. It ends with judgment. The tenants who persist in their rebellion are in the end given what they've chosen. Look at verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, that is the son, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. This is our chance. Let's let's get rid of him and finally, this will all be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then Jesus asks, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The last way that God responds is he gives his judgment. He gives his judgment. And the point here is that even though there is this gracious and scandalous patience of God, that judgment is coming. That even though it tarries, it's delayed, judgment is coming. And let me just point out a danger for for you and I as we live in times where you hear people, especially in uh, religious circles, saying, you know, why is God delaying? Why is God delaying in bringing 
you know, bringing about his judgment and making all things new. The danger is this, that because the judgment delays, that we would think that it's never going to come. That because it's delaying, that we think it's not going to come, and so we lose a sense of urgency and of uh, the call to repent. But Jesus is clear here and in his teaching elsewhere, judgment is going to come, and so this gives us reason to pause and seriously consider How have we responded to the Son? How have we responded to God's Son, to Jesus Christ? Now, it is not lost on me that judgment is a heavy word for our modern ears. I mean, judgment in our culture is often seen as the actions of a vindictive and trigger-happy God who is just so eager to smite those who get out of line. And so... Sometimes we stop listening when people use the J word. And the logic goes that a God of love wouldn't possibly judge anyone. No God of love could do that. But what this parable does is expose how false that is. That it's the same one who graciously and lovingly delays who also judges And we'll deal with the rebellion in the end. But notice, and and here's the thrust of the parable, that he only does so after he's given every single opportunity and exhausted all options. Now, I want you to consider this claim this morning, that God's judgment is not opposed to his love, but that his judgment is itself a manifestation of his love. You see, love actually has two sides to it. There's the constructive side of love where we, in our love, affirm and build up those we love and we fight for the beloved no matter what. But then there's also a deconstructive side. Now, stay with me a sec. There is a deconstructive side to love that actually seeks to confront everything that isn't love. So, Uh, Example in parenting, Uh, my love for my kids is expressed both in that constructive and deconstructive way. I mean, I love them unconditionally, but they do some stupid things sometimes. And so I have times where I'm blessing them and affirming the good and affirming, you know, the truth and beauty that I see in them as they're growing and developing and I'm protecting them. But then They do stupid things. And so I also, in my love, seek to deconstruct behaviors that are destructive when they come out. So, uh, you know, here's a real-life example. Um, So, Zoe, your brother did something that annoyed you, and so you bit him in the face? (laughs) Like, let's dismantle that right now. And so you need to deconstruct the the dangerous and destructive habits in your kids. And if you don't, you are not being a loving parent. If you don't have that deconstructive side to your love, you're going to enable all your kids' most destructive tendencies, and it's not going to go well for them in life. You see, judgment is wielded in the service of love. And thank God, thank God that one day God will confront and contain all the evil and everything that is wrong with the world. 
see, God's judgment is part of the same movement of love and grace, and it comes only after he's done everything from his side. And get this, he's done everything, including bringing judgment down on himself. That's what happened in the cross. That in giving his son up, to be the atoning sacrifice, the one who would cover over our sin, the, the one who uh, would die in our place, he brought judgment down on himself. That's how far the grace of God goes. He is so patient and gracious and almost foolishly so with the very people who have rejected him. And this is what the New Testament elsewhere calls the, the foolishness of the cross. That, that God's response to the hostile takeover of his world is instead of wiping us out and, uh, and condemning us as he would have every right to do, he gave his son to make peace. And Jesus laid down his life to atone for our treason. And by doing that, he made it possible for us to be gardeners again. To, to live with him, to live in his love and walk in his way of loving obedience. Now, just think practically for a moment of how this affects your life today. And, and the first stop I want us to make is just, can we just appreciate the goodness and grace of God for a moment? C can we let this good news of his patience and grace percolate a bit in our souls and give thanks for it. I mean, he's so good. Because again, this parable isn't just about Israel's leadership in Jesus's day, it's about us too. That apart from God's gracious intervention in our lives, we're in rebellion. We would be storming the capital, but he's acted to save the rebels. So I encourage you right now and even today, take time to linger in the awareness of God's grace. That he hasn't given us what we deserved. And take time to linger in the awareness of his mercy that he's given us what we don't deserve. That he's given us himself. That he's given us forgiveness. And let's allow that gospel to penetrate us. Because it's only as we let this good news really sink in for us that we can be sent out into the world and share good news with others. I mean, a glass can only spill what it contains. And as the people of God, we, we desperately need the awareness and experience and the knowledge of God's love to work its way into the very depths of our soul and every part of our lives. Secondly, it may be that as the world spins madly on and as you watch this message, that you've been lulled into something uh, of doubting the reality that finality will come, that one day everything is going to be resolved. And maybe there's a wake-up call for you here to consider where you stand with God's Son because there is a finality to how we respond to Jesus, whether we reject Him or whether we bow down before him and take him as our Savior and Lord. And 
My hope is that God is showing you a bit more, or maybe he's just blowing the door wide open and revealing to you the depth of his love for you in a way that you've never realized. And I want to encourage you to to seize the opportunity to bring your life under his rule and, and trust him. For the rest of us, I want us to sit as our service comes to a conclusion and reflect on this question. Let's just sit and reflect on how are you sensing you need to respond to this morning's message? How are you sensing that you need to respond to what God has done about the hostile takeover of his world? Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.